Drone applications are easy to imagine. Drones will deliver food to us. Drones will be able to extinguish fires. Drones will be used to relay internet signal and make the world more connected. These all sound like great ideas. So why aren't there more drones in the sky today? There are many answers to that question, some of which relate to engineering and some of which are about regulatory barriers. Chris Anderson is the CEO of 3D Robotics, a drone company which he started seven years ago. Before 3DR, Chris worked for many years as a journalist, writing about technology and science. He was the editor-in-chief at Wired for 11 years, a writer for The Economist for seven years, and spent three years at both of the leading scientific journals, Nature and Science. Chris is highly eloquent and has lots of interesting ideas. He also wrote The Long Tail, which is an influential 2004 book which described a set of emergent internet trends. I read that book back in 2009, and it was enlightening. Chris joins the show for a discussion about drones, journalism, and his perspective on modern technology. This podcast is brought to you by PagerDuty. You've probably heard of PagerDuty. Teams trust PagerDuty to help them deliver high-quality digital experiences to their customers. With PagerDuty, teams spend less time reacting to incidents and more time building software. Over 12,000 businesses rely on PagerDuty to identify issues and opportunities in real time and bring together the right people to fix problems faster and prevent those problems from happening again. PagerDuty helps your company's digital operations run more smoothly. PagerDuty helps you intelligently pinpoint issues like outages, as well as capitalize on opportunities, empowering teams to take the right, real-time action. To see how companies like GE, Vodafone, Box, and American Eagle rely on PagerDuty to continuously improve their digital operations, visit pagerduty.com. I'm really happy to have PagerDuty as a sponsor. I first heard about them on a podcast probably more than five years ago, and so it's quite satisfying to have them on Software Engineering Daily as a sponsor. I've been hearing about their product for many years, and I hope you check it out at pagerduty.com. Chris Anderson, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. I first saw your name when I read The Long Tail in college. Excellent book. I've followed your work since then. So you did spend many years as a professional editor, writer, but your background is as a scientist. In 2009, you started 3DR and no longer had as much time for writing or editing. If you were a full-time writer or editor today, what area would you be covering? Gosh, that's a good question. I backed into writing and editing simply because I, in science I'd done physics and physics was kind of a dying profession for reasons that had to do with like the cost of accelerators and things like that. My parents had been journalists and I swore I would never do journalism for exactly that reason. But, you know, I, I tried to find a middle ground, which was, okay, I'm not going to be a journalist, but I, you know, rather than doing science, I'll, I'll work for the science journals and, you know, and, and, and write about or, or edit, you know, science. So I still felt like I was in science and academia, but it was technically media, nature and, and science were the two journals. 
you know, but I, again, I, I, I didn't think of writing as being my thing. That, but I, you know, I ended up writing, you know, in, in, that, in that context and doing journalism, although it was science journalism. And then I went from there to The Economist, where I was, you know, starting with science and technology. And at The Economist, if you've read The Economist, it's got a very distinctive voice. And what I learned there was I sort of picked up that voice. And this, you can think of it as like the Oxbridge Debating Society voice or Prime Minister's Question Time voice. But it's a, it's a, it's a voice that has – it's confident, that's assured, that's quite opinionated, that's sort of, you know, assertion evidence, assertion evidence. And when you get to The Economist uh, – the reason I'm telling you this story is because, you know, I think that that – you know, once you get that voice, it becomes very portable. And that, that voice carries you on to books and, 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 and beyond. So I'll, I'll explain, explain why that voice carries on. But when you get to The Economist, there was a poster on the wall. And the poster on the wall had the canonical economist sentence. And the canonical economist sentence is wrong, period. As a matter of fact, it's the canonical economist paragraph. Now, when you think about that, you know, what does it take to be able to get away with wrong, period, as a paragraph? And what that means is that you basically have, you set up an assertion, somebody else's assertion, presumably, you know, you know the, the prime minister of Indonesia, you know, has said that palm oil subsidies are the route to, uh, you know, to the country's prosperity. Wrong, period. How do you get away with that? And the answer is that you're not just, you're not just a neutral observer. You're coming from a, you know, an intellectual foundation, you know, basically the Anglo-Saxon philosophical foundation of free markets and free people and democracy and all this kind of stuff. And you're sort of summoning all this kind of Western philosophy to take down an argument using the kind of, you know, the, the power of the, the brand, the, you know, 150 years of economic traditions, the, the, you know, the, the worldview of the liberal, you know, British, British perspective. And, and then you'd sort of, you know, and, and, and then the rest of it is just, you know, once you've internalized that voice and once you have, a, you know, you have the sort of the you've internalized the, you know, the, the Anglo-Saxon, you know, economic philosophy, then you can go around and see the world through that lens and say, you know, wrong, period, and, and explain why. And at the end of the day, people come away informed and perhaps enlightened by that perspective. So that confidence, that voice, which you learn in the, you know, the editors sitting on the editor's floor every Monday morning as the debates on what you're going to say, you know, come across that voice. Then, you know, once you come out of there, you realize, well, there's a lot of the world that you can apply that, that voice to. You know, you could, you could talk about technology, you could talk about the environment, you can talk about science, et cetera. Not that you necessarily be, need to be obnoxious and, and contrarian, but it gives you the confidence to, to move beyond the, you know, the sort of the, 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 the failure of American journalism. The failure of American journalism is neutrality, you know, what people call like the view from nowhere. Just like, well, on one hand, people say this. On the other hand, people say that. And American journalists aren't allowed to have opinions. Whereas elsewhere in the world, especially in, in the UK, journalists are allowed to have opinions, especially informed opinions. And so that power to have an opinion sort of carries over to writing. And then when you write a book like The Long Tail or Free or, or Makers, etc., that book becomes a thesis. It's basically just a, a long informed opinion argued out. And now you have now you have the ability to have opinions, you have the ability to to inform those opinions, you have the ability, and you have the skills to communicate that opinions. You know, now the world's your oyster. So if I was writing today, I would which I'm not, <laughs> I, I hasten to add, you know, I think this I, you basically go and you say, well, what is the most interesting thing that's the most poorly understood? 
those are the those are the best the best ones. So I think AI probably right now is very interesting and poorly understood. There's lots of people writing good good books about it, so I wouldn't I don't need to add to that. I think autonomy in general is interesting and poorly understood. I'm tormented by headlines I see about AI ethics, which I think is a complete head scratcher. I don't even know what that means. So that would be some reason not to write about it because I don't want to get caught up in a in a straw man argument. But you know, in general, right now technology has accelerated faster than society's ability to to you know to deal with it, and that strikes me as a good opportunity to bring clarity and persuasive argument to the to the case. There are so many applications of consumer drones that could improve our world. Why don't we see drones in the sky every day? Why is the sky not dark with drones? I ask myself that every morning. So you are with me here in Berkeley at the headquarters of 3DR. And also Berkeley was one of the birthplaces of the modern drone drone industry. This is, you know, so military drones started in the 1950s. But this is the this is the consumer drones that you describe. And it was, you know, here with the University of California, Stanford, uh, myself, about 10 years ago. And at the time, it was obvious that, you know, that A, drones could be cheap and and ubiquitous. So I started something called DIY drones on the, you know, the notion that you could stick, like, literally the letters do it yourself in front of a military industrial thing and it could, and it could work. It was clear that drones were going to be, that future drones were going to descend from smartphones, not from triple sevens. So that sort of told you something about if, you know, smartphones are ubiquitous and so presumably drones could be as well. There's no economic reason they couldn't. And then the, the next question was only going to be, you know, what are they good for? You know, we've not answered the question, what are they good for sufficiently? Because there is a regulatory barrier between inventing a drone and being able to use a drone. And the regulatory barrier, and, and by the way, totally appropriate, it's true for autonomous cars as well. You know, anytime you're, you're you know, it's, you know, Silicon Valley is all about asking forgiveness, not permission. And I can tell you the original drones, we did not look for permission. We just did it. And the San Francisco Bay out there has got, you know, floor of that bay is scattered with with crashed drones. Nobody got hurt. You know, they didn't, I don't think they leaked bad things into, you know, with the foam, et cetera. But it, lots, of, lots of drones crashed in, in, in the course of doing this. As we went from the DIY phase to the commercial phase and, then, and, then, and, and the consumer phase, we started to have to comply with the regulations. And the FAA regulations initially didn't allow commercial use at all. It was only recreational use. So it was really like not, you couldn't make money from drones until 2016. So there's one answer why the sky's not dark with these things. The next answer is that even once commercial use was allowed, it had certain restrictions. You had to stay within visual line of sight. You had to stay below 400 feet. You couldn't fly over people. You couldn't fly at night. And also there had to be one pilot per drone. So although they're autonomous, they don't need piloting, there actually has to be a person standing there. And even today, our fully autonomous drones cannot be launched until a human being touches an iPad. That's it. It's nothing to do. They just have to touch an iPad. And the act of touching the iPad validates that there is a human being present watching in case something happens, emergency services headquarters, you know, helicopter or something like that. So we actually haven't achieved any real efficiencies yet because of these restrictions. Now, we're very, very close to being able to, to, to break through. And there's an FAA process called type certification. And once a vehicle is certified as safe, then it will be allowed to fly beyond visual line of sight over people, maybe more than one-to-one pilot-to-human, pilot-to-drone, but could be one-to-twenty, one-to-fifty, one-to-hundred. And then we're going to start to see the efficiencies that automation and robotics brings. And that, that's going to, I mean, the, our, our type certification is going to be the first, and that's going to happen uh, before the end of the year. So starting next year, we may actually start to see, you know, them flying 
initially we're going to be doing things like infrastructure inspection, pipeline, power line inspection, but dams, you're going to stay delivery, things like that. And so I think that... I think the answer is, you know, we thought it was a technical problem and we solved the technical problem in five years. It was actually a technical and then a regulatory problem. And the regulatory problem is going to take 10 years and we're about five years into it. So give us, give us another few years and, and, and we'll get there. What will they be doing? Anything satellites were doing in the 70s and then airplanes were doing in the 90s and drones can do, can do better. Not, not, they, drones have higher resolution both spatial and temporal resolution. So if you want to see something, you know, millimeter resolution every hour, only only a drone can do that. If you want to see the globe once a week, that, you know, whatever, that's that's a satellite. But, you know, this is a long answer to your question, but I, I believe that we in Silicon Valley have a holy mission, which is that we were we were gifted the internet. We were born with you know, the most important technology of our age is the electricity of our time. And our mission is to ex- extend this gift to the world, extend the internet to our homes, to our arms, to our cars, to the air, to space, etc. And why would we do that? Well, if you extend the internet into the world, the you know world becomes smarter. All these devices connected to the internet are smarter for it, and then the internet becomes smarter from being able to kind of measure the the planet. And you know, our fundamental principle is that you can only manage what you can measure. And we've been doing a kind of a kind of bad job of managing the planet from environmental and economic perspectives. And so, the better we can measure. The planet with drones and satellites and, and everything else and feed it into the internet, you know, we'll, the better we will be in managing it. And right now we're just picking the ones that where the, where the value is the highest. Um, we're here in, in, in wildfire season in California. Our drones are being used to fight wildfires. How do they do that? The thermal cameras can see through the smoke and see where the fires are. Before the fire, the, the drones can spot the fuel, the, the needles and the, the leaves that will create those fires. And then after the fire, we can spot the hot spots. They're still there so they don't turn into fires again. Climate change. Our drones are right now, all the water infrastructure, the dams and levees of America are all built assuming one amount of rainfall or sea level rise, and they're all being challenged by climate change. So those, you know, now we're seeing floods, we're seeing, you know, sea level rise, etc. All that infrastructure needs to be re-scanned. Impossibly expensive. We know with on, on the ground and trivially easy for drones. And so you're seeing the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers using our drones to look at all those levees there to figure out what's what needs to be reinforced and what doesn't and so on. Looking for a job is painful. And if you are in software and you have the skill set needed to get a job in technology, It can sometimes seem very strange that it takes so long to find a job that's a good fit for you. Vettery is an online hiring marketplace that connects highly qualified workers with top companies. Vettery keeps the quality of workers and companies on the platform high because Vettery vets both workers and companies. Access is exclusive, and you can apply to find a job through Vettery by going to vetery.com slash sedaily. That's V-E-T-T-E-R-Y dot com slash sedaily. Once you're accepted to Vettery, you have access to a modern hiring process. You can set preferences for location, experience level, salary requirements, and other parameters so that you only get job opportunities that appeal to you. No more of those recruiters sending you blind messages that say they are looking for a Java rock star with 35 years of experience who's willing to relocate to Antarctica. We all know that there is a better way to find a job. 
So check out vettery.com slash sedaily and get a $300 sign-up bonus if you accept a job through Vettery. Vettery is changing the way people get hired and the way that people hire. So check out vettery.com slash sedaily and get a $300 sign-up bonus if you accept a job through Vettery. That's V-E-T-T-E-R-Y dot com slash S-E-Daily. Thank you to Vettery for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Over the remaining five years of that regulatory timeline, and then in the successive years after that, how will your business strategy unfold? We at 3DR started by building the components for drones, autopilots and such. Then we became, then we built the drones themselves and became America's largest manufacturer of drones. Then once the Chinese got really good at it, we got out of that and we moved over to the software. So we're essentially a software company and we just look at the data from, from drones, not the drones itself. That's not entirely true. We, we do actually have, have one drone of ourselves for, for people who can't, who are not allowed to buy Chinese drones, which is like the U.S. government. By and large, we're, we're on the data side. And so we, you know, it used to be that it was quite hard to use a drone and gather data. Now it's trivially easy. You just touch a button and it just magic happens. And the question is, where is the return on investment on that data the highest? So we started with construction. Then we went to like the geospatial industries, like the, you know, the earthwork inspection that we, we said we talked about before. You're seeing pu- public safety, you know, fire police picking up as well. We have just scratched the surface of what's possible here. I think that, you know, what the regulation allows us to do is to go beyond that sort of visual line of sight perspective. So we're looking at like like bigger areas. So although we started with Autodesk and construction, we're now actually working even more with uh, geospatial stuff with like with Esri's a geospatial giant, and that's our main partner in this. So whatever they were doing with satellites you know, a few years ago, they're increasingly doing with, with drones. And the nice thing about these regulations is that now we can, now we can fly tens of kilometers, you know, so sort of beyond visualized sites. So linear infrastructure, power lines, gas pipelines, roads, bridges, tunnels, airports, you know, all that kind of stuff. Now is, that's now within the reach of what we can scan with drones. And so I think you're going to see us you're going to see more of the world fall within the, the scope of drones. I mean, we've already, you know, the battery life's already there. You know, the flight time's already there. The, soon the regulations will be there. And now, you know, think of it, we've been looking at pixels, and now we're going to start looking at screens. What are the remaining technical barriers that feel the most acute right now? You know, almost none. You know, I sort of feel like all the technical problems were solved years ago. Um, now, that's not entirely true. But, you know, fully autonomous operations, including sense and avoids. There's a company, Skydio, right now doing amazing, you know, amazing work. But that's computer vision, basically, you know, navigating through forests and through leaves, et cetera, just using, just using cameras. You know, that's flying low. When you fly higher, you want to be able to avoid other aircraft. And that's a harder computer vision, you know, problem. But there's, there's a company called Iris Automation that's doing that, again, with, with cameras. You know, the vehicles can fly almost any distance. Drones have flown across the Atlantic, just use different fuel, you know, gas engines or hybrids or whatever. The radio links can go tens or hundreds of miles. The computer vision is amazing. You know, GPS gets better and better. The software is kind of done, you know, uh, on all this. There's, you know, there's almost nothing I can think of, you know, you know, the drone delivery, precision landing, all that stuff. We basically benefit from the advances in AI and computer vision out there already. So I can't, literally cannot think of any technical problems right now that haven't at least been solved at the kind of university level. What about security? 
Well, you know, define define security. I mean, the military has secure drones and has and has for many years. I mean, it's just you know, do you want to do you want to have it like going through satellites, encrypted, you know, stuff? Sure, can be done. You know, right now the security is kind of whatever people want. Um, on the you know commercial space, it's you know standard Wi-Fi, two fifty six bit, you know, in- encryption. You can go, you know, you can pay more for for other security. You can on the cloud side, we use FedRAMP. It's really, it's kind of what do you want to pay? It all exists. Let's imagine a construction site, I want to map that construction site or ensure the safety. I want to have an understanding of what's going on in that construction site. And so I'm going to use a drone to do that. Walk me through what the drone is doing as it's flying over or through the construction site. How is the data getting recorded? How is it getting sent to the cloud? Or is it like sitting on the drone and then the drone lands and you have to upload it? Take me through the, the technical process. So I'll, I'll describe sort of the, the optimal process. And so for our larger customers, they've kind of, you know, they've got it all, all, all very efficient. The optimal process is that this is being done every day, maybe in the morning and the evening. So, you know, the temporal resolution, you know, not just, not just the spatial, but, you know, because our objective here is to create what's called a digital twin. You know, back in the day, you know, construction was started on screens with a CAD file, but the moment they started digging, it was analog paper, blueprints, you know, notepads and things like that. We want that digital file, that, that digital plan to reflect reality. So, you know, as they say, you know, no, no, no plan survives the first shot. You know, no construction project survives the first spade of dirt. Something changed. And so, you know, if you don't update the digital file, then that digital file, you know, there's entropy. It, it, it sort of loses its relevance as it becomes less and less reflective of reality. So there's something called a reality capture. And the objective is to have the digital file, you know, like, like you would with, with software. You want people to commit their software back to, you know, the, 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 you know, the master so the master is canonical. So in this case, you know, it's not a, it's not a GitHub repository. It's a, it's a CAD file. And that CAD file should be updated every day to reflect reality. How do you reflect reality? Well, back in the old days, people would have to like type in, here's what I did, too laborious. Now you want, it, you want the, a scan to automatically capture reality and then update the BIM file to show what happened when. So that, that, that's what we're doing at the headquarters. They've said, okay, this is, this is the site. And we want it to, let's say, capture the whole scan, both the horizontal and the vertical structures. And we want to capture at you know, 7 o'clock in the morning and at 5 o'clock at night. And, and so the, the plan is, is that the, the drone is sitting in some spot in a box. What's going to happen is that somebody's going to walk in the, the site in the morning, unlock the gates, unlock the trailer, turn on the generator and open the drone box and take the drone out. Maybe stick a battery in. At that point, uh, somebody will, a construction worker, will touch a button on an iPad and a plan that has already been loaded to that iPad from headquarters is going to be uploaded to the drone. The drone will take off. It'll do a lawnmower pattern or a, peri- or a circular pattern or a spiral pattern, depending on what the site is at the point. It'll take about somewhere between nine and 10 minutes to do the whole site. It'll take probably about 200 images flying about about 250 feet, and then it'll land on its own. At that point, yeah, somebody will put the drone back in the box and touch another button on the iPad. And the imagery from that drone will go into the iPad and then automatically be uploaded to the cloud, to our cloud. At that point, all those photos then get through a process called photogrammetry. All those photos get, get sort of analyzed. And basically the way photogrammetry works, it's called, it's called structure from motion. But when you see the same object from different perspectives, you, using the parallax effect, you can actually see the depth you can, of that. So although the, the photos are all 2D, when you combine a bunch of 2D photos, you end up with a 3D 
3D model. And that'll be a point cloud or a mesh or something like that. So that's automatically generated. Then that is automatically synced up with the, the, the CAD file. And you have these things called ground control points. And so in the course of flying over, it's certain features are known, had known position. They have like an X or some sort of fiducial optical, you know, fiducial. They're automatically recognized. And so that aligns this 3D model to the same locations. And so it snaps into location. And now this becomes a layer in the CAD file. And you can basically scroll forward and backwards through time and see how and see how things change. And because these are meshes, they're actually geometries, which can be snapped on, you know, snap and can in, in alignment with the underlying CAD file. And you could say, oh, that post was supposed to be here, but it's actually two meters over. There's probably a reason why they moved that post two meters over. There's a rock or something like that. Okay. Well, that's, that's good to know. You know, now that now the digital twin says, okay, guys, going forward, know that that post is not where it was supposed to be, but it's now over here. So when you put the trench, now put the tre- now you have to move the trench as well. And, you know, when you're, when you're going to be cutting the, uh, the, you know, the steel beam to go on that post, know that the steel beam is going to have to be changed as well. So now all that information goes into the supply chain and the scheduling going forward, and they make better choices because it reflected reality. Your software is open source, or some of it? Um, it's, it's actually not. So the software on the drone, so the drone might be using our, the, the software that we originally you know, uh, developed or, or the software that we're now working on as part of the drone code uh, project as part of the Linux Foundation. So the software on the drone is probably open source. It might be a DJI vehicle, which is closed source, or it might be one of, one of the open source ones based on drone code. That's just you know, to, to operate the drone and mission and all this kind of stuff. The data, on the other hand, goes into the cloud, and that's all closed source. What's the reasoning behind, oh, I guess, so the open source project is you just joined or co-founded the, the Linux Foundation project? I created project? it, yeah. Okay. What have been the ramifications of the open source? I mean, just to give some context, I, I you told quite a great story at the Open Core Summit. I, I know we can't go through that that in the entirety, but maybe you can give a condensed highlights version of that story, perhaps. The evolution of your code being used by constituencies of various ethical flavors. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So when I started, I started as a, as a hobby. I was the editor of Wired. It was just something I was doing with my kids. It became a community. It took off. And everything I do in, as a community has always been open source, You know, whether it's you know, creative commons or, you know, or, or actual code. So it was just a default open because it was a hobby, you know, and and then and then as it got as it got bigger, it became sort of better organized and you know proper code development processes and and maintainers and things like that. As it got bigger, yet it became clear that we had the opportunity to create essentially the Android of of UAVs, unmanned aerial vehicles. And I was like, okay, well, you know, this is starting to look like smartphones. The DJI was was doing really well, and DJI was very much modeled after Apple. So DJI came out of the Shenzhen, Pearl River Delta, and it was one of those companies that was formed by people who had been, you know, building iPhones, you know, in the factories around there, and for the last ten years, and sort of taking notes the whole time. So very much modeled after after Apple, closed source, vertically integrated, but with an app layer. And we're like, well, okay, we think there's probably, you know, room for an Android as well. You know, open is good. And, you know, the nice thing about Android is it allows this proliferation of form factors. And with drones, you also do want a proliferation of form factors. You want airplanes and vertical takeoff. um, And then you want big, big helicopters and little helicopters. And, you know, we're too soon to, I mean, you know, with phones, you can argue there's, you know, sort of, you know, maybe 
a limited number of, range, of form factors, small, medium, large, etc. But with drones, it's like everything, deliveries, you know, military, the, the work. So, you know, open platforms make sense when you want to separate the software and the hardware. That said, DJI was doing such a good job, there really wasn't sufficient demand. Everyone was like, you know, gosh, you know, we're just getting crushed by DJI. Nobody's big enough to be the Google of this operating system, if you will. And so it was kind of an academic project, I think, for a long time. What happened then is that, so it was like, who wouldn't want to use DJI? Who would want an open source one? Well, it was hobbyists, for sure. It was academics. But then it was also bad guys. And we found that as, you know, because we'd made drones really, when you make something DIY, it becomes very cheap and open and easy. And, you know, the vast majority of the uses were good, but there were clearly some people who were, there were terrorists, there was ISIS, who were, who were going to be using it for ill. And we thought about this and we, we said, you know, what should we be doing about that? And so we talked to our friends at the CIA and the NSA and the FBI, et cetera. And we said, look, we, you know, we want to be super transparent about this. We know that people are using, uh, you know, the software for ill. And they're like, well, thanks for telling us. And we're like, we don't know what to do differently. We can't close it off because what's the point? We can't put in back doors because people won't use them. You know, we can't track these things because we'll just turn off the trackers. It's open source, et cetera. And they're like, yeah, we can't think of anything you can do either. If you see anyone doing anything bad, just let us know. And so we told our community, look, if you, if you tell us that you want to deliver 55 pounds, 2,000 kilometers, we don't think that's a good idea. And you shouldn't do that. And we're probably going to tell our friends that the FBI, to, you know, th th this is happening. Now, we don't really know who these people are. And, you know, so we just sort of say, hey, FBI, check, check this thing out. And so we were pretty transparent that was what we we're going to do. And then, you know, we said, well, you know, look, we really can't stop bad people from using the, you know, the code, but we can encourage good people to use the code as well. So we spent a lot of time informing the U.S. government about the advantages of the open source drones. And we said, look, you know, right now you've got an asymmetrical warfare. You've got, you've got ISIS using, you know, the cobbling together drones with hand grenades. And then meanwhile, you've got these multi-million dollar anti-aircraft missiles, et cetera. It's, it's just kind of disproportionate. You should probably also have cheap you know, open drones. And, you know, by the way, it's free and here, you know, go at it. And, and to their credit, parts of the government, including the White House during the Obama regime, totally embraced openness. And the Office of Science and Technology Policy actually created a white paper encouraging this. And subsequently, you know, it's been a long, a long process of, of educating the government, including the military and the police, et cetera, about the, the advantages of these kind of consumer-grade drones. And we're coming around to it. And, you know, today you're starting, um, uh, there's a company called Andril, has a drone killer drone, one drone that kind of chases and kills another drone. That, that drone happens to be based on our, on our software. You know, you're starting to see the small drones are based on our, on our software, our software being the drone code PX4 software. So I think, I think the message is getting through. And I think all we can do as a community is sort of, you know, bend over backwards to educate those who are trusted to protect us. And otherwise, just remain consistent to the, to the spirit of openness and not try to kind of, you know, sneakily put in backdoors or you know, try, to, try to, you know, game the system just, just to educate. It's no surprise that you have to bend over backwards to educate the regulatory bodies. What about customers? If you're trying to sell to construction companies or oil refineries or these likely candidates as early customers of consumer drone technology, how ready are they to to buy? Yeah. Not very ready is the answer. You know, 
there's two hard things about selling to enterprise, business to business, SaaS and all this kind of stuff. Well, you know, one hard thing is just that there's the sales cycle for large companies. You know, you have to kind of, you know, you're asking them to build a return on investment, you know, decision. They have to change the processes. That's a long process. And then when you have a brand new technology that's highly regulated, it's even harder yet. So, you know, unlike mature technologies where it's like, I'm going to use this HR software versus that HR software. When you're saying like flying robots on your construction site, there's a lot of people who need to kind of be convinced. You know, the general counsel, the CFO, you know, the site manager, you know, maybe local constituencies like, you know, the city government, etc., construction workers, et cetera. So it's been a long, a long process. And typically what happens is it starts with a proof of concept. We do one. The one sort of works okay. Then you sort of extend the proof of concept and you sort of say, okay, well, so we flew the, the site, we got the data, and now you now the data is available to, you know, to people who aren't on the site, you know, that client or the, you know, the construction manager or the, the CFO or whatever. And they're like, oh, okay, now I can see the data. I can see actually how we would use that. Then they maybe they win a lawsuit because they had evidence that, you know, that they were not at, at fault. And they're like, whoa, okay, now I can see the, the virtue of recording this. And then they're like, okay, we're going to standardize on this. And now we're going to do more sites. We're going to do all of our sites this way. And then like one construction company sees another construction company standardizing. It's like, oh, okay. We're talking 10 years it can take, you know, to do that. So that's been a challenge. They actually don't care whether it's open source or not. They just care about the data. And we want them to be totally agnostic about the, the capture side. Push a button, magic happens. The open source stuff is more relevant, um, has become relevant for two big reasons. One is that the paranoia about China, the Huawei stuff, et cetera, has led the U.S. government to discourage the use of DJI vehicles, both over critical infrastructure, ports, transportation, energy, et cetera, and also military you know, infrastructure. So there's been this vacuum in the market. Basically, a lot of fleets, government fleets are now grounded because of this DJI ban. And so there's, everyone's like, well, well, is there something else out there that's trusted? And then this has been a big motive force for the adoption of the open source stuff. The second is that the FAA created this new certification process for drones, and we're going to be the first going through. And the FAA also wanted to embrace a kind of a, an industry standard rather than a single company's one. And so these open source ones are going to be the first to be approved, certified, and so they're going to be able to one, the first to be able to fly beyond visual line of sight and all those other things. So you know, in a sense, the government is driving the adoption of open source by A, banning close, the closed source alternative, and B, standardizing on the open source development process as being the one that'll be, that they trust to be certified. As businesses become more integrated with their software than ever before, it has become possible to understand the business more clearly through monitoring, logging, and advanced data visibility. Sumo Logic is a continuous intelligence platform that builds tools for operations, security, and cloud-native infrastructure. The company has studied thousands of businesses to get an understanding of modern continuous intelligence, and then compiled that information into the Continuous Intelligence Report, which is available at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash sumologic. The Sumologic Continuous Intelligence Report contains statistics about the modern world of infrastructure. Here are some statistics I found particularly useful. 64% of the businesses in the survey were entirely on Amazon Web Services, which was vastly more than any other cloud provider or multi-cloud or on-prem deployment. That's a lot of infrastructure on AWS. 
Another factoid I found was that a typical enterprise uses 15 AWS services, and one in three enterprises uses AWS Lambda. It appears serverless is catching on. There are lots of other fascinating statistics in the Continuous Intelligence Report, including information on database adoption, Kubernetes, and web server popularity. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash sumologic and download the Continuous Intelligence Report today. Thank you to Sumo Logic for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. In your talk, you described competing with China on a piece of drone hardware as, I think you said, the, your first encounter with a superior species? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Can you give me a nuanced perspective and prediction on our relationship with China as a business and technology community? Sure. You know, first, some disclosures. Biggest disclosure is, you know, I've lived in China for four years. Some of my children were born there. I'm a huge Sinophile. I think we're going to lose in many ways to China, and I'm completely okay with that. <laughs> so just, just putting that aside. You know, okay, you can take away my, my you know, MAGA hat and all that. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I am not nationalistic. I'm British by birth. I, you know, live in America. My children are raised in I mean, I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, I'm pro-technology, and I just like want the best technology wherever it happens. And if one country does better than another, you know, peace. Got to be with you. That said, I'm a running a business, and I, I want to do it well and, and, and win. So when I lived in, in China from 97 uh, through 2000, it was a, kind of the dawn of the modern Chinese. So I was like camping out on the floors of Huawei. And it was pretty clear to me then that everything I'd been told about China was wrong. I was told, oh, you know, they can't innovate. They only copy. Oh, don't worry. They can only do hardware. They can't do software. Oh, don't worry. They're, you know, they can't do global marketing. They can't do global reach. You know, oh, you know, oh, don't worry. They don't understand user interfaces. You know, I was pretty clear all that was wrong. It was like, you know, don't worry, China can't do X. I could not find an X. And I was like, okay, so when I started, you know, the company 3DR, and we actually started in 2013, although the community, the company started earlier, but the company that, you know, that, that I run today started in 2013. We're like, okay, we know there's no X, that China can do everything. So, you know, how could we possibly start a company that would compete with China? And, and I thought, I think rightly, but wrongly, that I had fa I found the X and the X was open source. I said, you know, the one thing that we have going for us is that we really understand open source. We build communities, we motivate communities. And, and for whatever reason, China has used open source, but they haven't really contributed to open source. They haven't built a kind of internal culture of open source. And so we think that open source is our secret sauce. And the only thing cheaper than Chinese engineers are free engineers. Okay, so... Sadly, I think I'm right about that. China has still, you know, failed to really embrace open source from the contributing side. That said, where I was wrong is the notion that open source engineers are free engineers. They're by no means free engineers. And if you do it right, you're basically paying people to contribute to an open source project. So we didn't have the economic advantage that we thought we did. In addition, at this immature stage of the business, you can't just sort of open source the software and assume that somebody else is going to make great hardware. You actually had to vertically you had to create a hardware-software combination. And there we were at a massive disadvantage. You know, DJI is, 
I think, one of the best companies in the world. It's certainly one of the best companies in China. When I talked about a superior species, DJI is a kind of a 21st century Chinese company. Not like, you know, the old ones that kind of migrated. This is one who was kind of, you know, born in the, you know, born in the clarifying fires of the Apple supply chain, you know? They did everything right. And they kicked our ass fair and square. You know, they raised more money. They had more engineers. They were faster. They innovated, etc. And, you know, on the hardware side, although we were manufacturing in, in Shenzhen, we weren't native. And so we were always going to be slower, more expensive. We were less funding, less engineers, etc. So once I realized that, I was like, you know, I don't think that American hardware companies are a thing. I think hardware should be done in China. And, you know, so the next question is, well, are American software companies a thing? And the answer is yes, they still are. Why are American software companies still a thing? And I think number one is I think we really do do, I think open source really is not just sort of, you know, technically opening stuff. It is the community building and the sharing and, and the pull requests are much more important than the, the downloads, if you will. And pull requests are still a really unusual thing in China. Why would you, why would you submit your secret bug fix to your competitors, et cetera? So I think that's, that's a bit of an advantage we still have here. And the other is that the great firewall of China works both ways. As software becomes more cloud and more data and less sort of running on devices, you know, you're starting to see that people just don't want to put their data in a Chinese cloud. And a Chinese cloud is considered subject to Beijing's influence, which is, I think, is increasingly the case. And so that firewall, although there's no firewall on hardware, tariffs aside, there really is a firewall on cloud and data. And so I think we're starting to see that you actually have two internets. You've got the, you know, the BAT, the Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent internet on one side, and then you have the, the FANGs, you know, the Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google, one FANG, I don't know how to pronounce that exactly, etc. And, and those two worlds really, I do see them continuing for a long time. So I'm bearish on non-Chinese hardware, but bullish on non-Chinese software and communities. There's a whole lot more I could ask you about there, but we're nearing the end of our time. So I just want to ask you a few things that I can also get a distinct opinion on. You are deeply familiar with the scientific journals, Nature and Science. Mm -hmm. What's the future of those periodicals and their influence? That's a great question. So Science and Nature are the two premier scientific journals, and they're a career maker. You get published in Science and Nature and, and a few others, you know, tenure, you know, citations, you know, all that stuff. So academia and science in particular is built on rep a reputation economy. You know, your, your grants, your position in universities, your ability to recruit students, et cetera, is all based on your reputation. And so in a reputation economy, the carriers of reputation are the journals and their citation, their, their authority, if you will. And that's just the way science works. There's also peer review and, and, and all that kind of stuff, but it's, but it's a reputation economy and reputation is formed by the journals. And I think nature and science will be fine forevermore. But there are also about, you know, 100,000 other journals below them of diminishing reputation. And there, the process of going into one of those journals involving a year of peer review, you know, publishing is something that costs a lot of money, you know, not being able to, to give free access to other things becomes actually a hindrance to science. And so there's this open journal method you know, that's been taking off over the last few years, especially in physics, computer science, and, but now, now also in, in the biological sciences where people are saying, well, why don't we just open source science? You know, and create a community that will peer review, a community that will edit and share and reference, et cetera, and, you know, take the monetary, take all the disadvantages of the, the commercial journals out of that process. And, and that's working well. It's slower 
than you would expect. And it's, and it's slower you expect because, again, the reputation, because the reputation economy is so entrenched in traditional academic incentives that it's really hard for someone to say, hey, you know what? My great paper, I'm not going to publish in Nature. I'm just going to publish it in, in PLOS2, which is Public Library of Sciences, an open, open access journal. I'm going to publish in PLOS2. Now, I, I think that's awesome, and I'm super glad they did. But they may feel that it gives them slightly less credibility and slightly less chance of getting tenure. And it's so important that they may choose to kind of support the old system, you know, because it's a little thing for the system, but it's a lot for them. So I think that, you know, long term, what we're going to see is, is a winnowing. It's a little bit like media. So, you know, media, you know, newspapers are a show unless you're the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, maybe the Washington Post, you know. So you're seeing three entities that re- remain have the reputation or the, or the backing of Bezos or whatever to maintain. And then the San Francisco Chronicles of the world are just toast. I think you're going to see the same thing in scientific publishing. The natures and the sciences and the cells and a few others are going to be fine. And then there's a bazillion, you know, smaller journals, especially in fast-moving industries like computer science, they're just going to go away. And, and that will all go, you know, the long tail of publishing is going to go open access and the head's going to remain the premier but commercial journals. And in the limit in both those domains, do we want this kind of esteemed voice, this esteemed trusted voice? Is that useful or do we want everything to be crowdsourced and open? Well, I mean, the reputation of the science and nature comes not just from their title, but because the, the rigorous process they go through to decide what they publish and what they don't. Peer review, but, but editors, etc. And science is complicated. Most science is wrong. That's cool. That happens. That's just the way scientific works. Figuring out what science is wrong and not wrong is very hard. You often need peers. Those peers are busy. Sometimes they're conflicted, etc. So I think that we really do need, you know, an editing process for science, a review process, a way to figure out, you know, what science is better than other science. And the question is, how do we pay for it? The journals pay for it commercially. The open access ones do it with non-monetary motivations, you know, just the same way open source works, essentially non-monetary motivations, but they too have a business to run and editors to pay. And so, you know, I, I think that the experiments are going to be played out first in, in computer science. And then computer science is starting to move away from the commercial journals. Physics is also moving away from the physics journals. And so I think we're going to see this play out in computer science because it's fast moving. There's lots of other ways to discern what's real and what's not. And, you know, watch that space. Watch how the academic computer scientists, you know, start building the reputation in a more open access way. And that's going to be a path for the rest of the disciplines. Chris Anderson, thank you very much. Thank you. As a programmer, you think in objects. With MongoDB, so does your database. MongoDB is the most popular document-based database built for modern application developers and the cloud era. Millions of developers use MongoDB to power the world's most innovative products and services, from cryptocurrency to online gaming, IoT, and more. Try MongoDB today with Atlas, the global cloud database service that runs on AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud. Configure, deploy, and connect to your database in just a few minutes. Check it out at mongodb.com atlas. That's mongodb.com atlas. Thank you to MongoDB for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. <laughs> 